1: Welcome back. Charles Kessler writes that the term conservative began to be used commonly in the late 19th century America in order to distinguish the defenders of sound money, traditional constitutional and political arrangements from their sundry opponents such as populists, labor radicals, urban progressives, democratic tub thumpers like William Bryan. Conservatives were then the establishment, or at least thought to be, and hence did not need to launch a movement, really. Confusingly, however, these conservatives included everyone from the most corrupt apologists for political machines to the next high-minded defenders of constitutional rectitude. In part, the lumping together was deliberate and an effort to take the latter with the former's base motives— at its best, however, this conservative, this conservative movement had roots going back to Abraham Lincoln. By and large, it was a legal or constitutional set of thinking, a strength that was also a weakness. Although these conservatives fought courageously against a growing variety of novel assaults on the Constitution, they were usually on the strategic defensive in an era whose main intellectual currents were increasingly hostile to individual rights and limited government. These eminent practitioners were unable to face down the philosophical challenges to the order they loved so well. This sounds like much of our problem today, which is why I love Charles Kessler's new book, The Crisis of the Two Constitutions, from which I'm quoting. There, he writes about the Americanization of conservatism, stating, one might combine criticisms of latter-day traditionalism and libertarianism by saying that a reborn American conservatism based on the principles of the American revolution would teach both morality and freedom, order and liberty, not as a fusion or agglomeration of opposites, but through inferences from the same set of principles. (coughs) Excuse me. Those principles are the rights of man under the laws of nature. Now, One of the great achievements of the scholars who helped intentionally or not to inspire the contemporary conservative movement was the reopening of the question of natural right or justice. For the first time in perhaps 100 years, it is now possible for us to return to the natural right doctrines of the American founders in an intelligent way to revive their molding and political enterprise and make it the heart and soul of a new American conservatism. Practically speaking, this means a rediscovery of the moral basis and the moral arguments for Republican government. A restored republic would entail a federal government that is much more limited than the present state, though energetic in pursuit of its limited objects the inveterate conservative opposition to big government would shift in emphasis from horse calls to get the government out of our wallets and off our backs to a new indictment of big government as an insult or assault to our rights, an offense against our equality, a violation of our Constitution. To be sure, big government has always been a reliable target of conservative denunciation, yet often the grounds of the conservative attack on it have been Sandy a new uh, excuse me a few perfunctory invocations of the 10th amendment perhaps warmed over anger at the unholy expense of it all some boilerplate about the imperial judiciary the modern state offends republicanism even more profoundly than it offends federalism however and conservatives should reformulate their attacks along more provocative constitutional Lines, for example, stressing not only the cost of entitlement programs but the manner in which they inveigle good word, the manner in which they inveigle us into thinking that all our rights flow from government, or criticizing bureaucracy not only for its wastefulness and absurdity but for its despotic tendency to concentrate legislative, executive, and even judicial power into the same experts and intellectuals or unelected hands. Even as economic conservatives ought to acknowledge that morality is essential to limited government, so too religious and social conservatives should recognize that America is in many ways less free than it used to be. We suffer from too much license and not enough liberty. On the one hand, the modern state social programs encourage personal responsibility by socializing its costs. On the other hand, big government narrows personal freedoms essential to republicanism. The right to use and be secure in one's property, to donate money to political campaigns, to count as an equal regardless of race or ethnicity in the eyes of the law. So today's manifold threats to liberty and morality stem mainly from the same source, modern liberalism's rejection of the original American understanding of self-government. Reacting piecemeal to this affront, each, each faction of the existing conservative movement has seized on an important part of the truth, but there is something missing that can be supplied only by a more American and more political conservatism. Though in some ways conservatism is now in a position to reconnect itself with the constitutionalist doctrines of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, ultimately it is the conservatism of the founders that we are seeking. Their principles will not yield immediate solutions to every public policy issue we should recognize, of course, and admit. For example, the Declaration of Independence will not tell us what to do about Google and Twitter, But their basic principles of justice and constitutional architecture, great word, will be relevant to our most important concerns, always assuming that we have the practical wisdom to apply them rightly. The conservatives of a century ago had one big advantage over us. They saw modern liberalism in its youth at its most theoretically audacious and before its projects had become familiar. By rediscovering America's principles, conservatives have it in their power to encounter liberalism afresh, to see it anew and as a whole for the first time in many decades, and thus to learn how radical a departure from the Constitution of the founders it actually is. Here in truth is where something like the principles of the French Revolution took hold of mainstream American progress and did not let it go. In thinking through the crisis of American national identity today, we should keep in mind the opening words of the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths. Usually incorrectly, we emphasize the truths that are held in common, but we must not forget the we, the we, the we who hold them. The American creed. It is the keystone of American national identity, but it requires a culture to sustain it. The Republican task is to recognize the creed's primacy of the culture's indispensability and the challenge which political wisdom alone can answer to shake the people that can endure while also living up to its principles. If you want to understand why the left so often attacks our founding, and as i monologued yesterday even now going so far as in one case trying to cancel independence day and in another just tolerating merely tolerating a president who will let us know if we can celebrate in our own backyards and with how many people if you want to want to understand the taproot the taproot of the hatred of our founding it is explained by the notion of relativism you see Relativism, long a part and parcel of progressivism, holds that there is no such thing as absolute truth or absolute right or wrong, only power and temporary or transient preferences. But we were a country whose founders, giving us our founding, declared our existence on the basis of objective and inerrant permanent truth. That is the philosophical problem the progressives have with our founding. Every other critique or laundry list of condemnations emanates centrifugally from that, whether they know it or not. But, back to Kessler if I might, for all its talk of openness, what is most characteristic of the contemporary left, especially the academy, is its unwillingness to hear of relativism's alternatives. There is a, const, uh, there is a constituency within American universities for diverse, diversity in virtually every area except the vital ones. Yet the argument against the radical separation of facts and values must be heard if American education is ever to be able to recapture itself and respect and its purpose. This, of course, calls for the reading of great books, as Alan Bloom and Edie Hirsch have argued eloquently, but not merely for the reading of great books. It is too easy for such studies to degenerate into their own kind of cultural relativism in which moral and political questions are condescended to from the Olympian heights of intellectual virtue, or rather of the character of intellectual virtue that remains when practical wisdom is denied its rightful place as part of intellectual perfection. In Aristotle's account, one of his distinctions is between the theoretical wisdom and the practical wisdom, whereas the practical is concerned with one's own good and ignores the relationship between one's own good and the public good. Plato, who did not make such distinctions between theoretical and practical knowledge, understood the quest for wisdom to begin with a question at once practical and theoretical. How shall we live? In short, according to both Plato and Aristotle, that concern, how shall we live, is the highest question of theory and ought to begin with and ultimately return every reflection on on one's own situation for the good of society. For if we are serious about how we shall live as a question, if we are serious about what's good for the individual as good— we will be serious about what's good for the public as well. Thus, the reading of great books, although necessary, is not sufficient. They must be read with the beauty of the student's own good as human beings and citizens. They must be read with an eye for something outside tests. For the aim of education is not simply the imparting of facts or the appreciation of great books, but wisdom uniting theory and practice, knowledge with character and ideas that have consequences. The recognition that the pursuit of knowledge, of knowledge shorn of its moral and political responsibility becomes a spiritless game behind the frequent calls in our time for schools to teach merely values. Facts are not enough. Students need something more. The demand has been taken up by both liberal and conservatives, of course, and there's a movement called cultural conservatism, which sprang up a few years ago explicitly to fight relativism by encouraging an attention to values. But to speak of conserving just values is already to make a crucial concession to the relativist position, for values are not serious because values are by definition subjective. To invoke absolute values is to do more than to announce that one feels strongly about them. That the distinction is not merely verbal may be gathered from cultural conservatives' answer to the pointed question, why we conservatives value Western civilization? Why do we value Western uh, Western civilization's values? Well, we often answer, because they work. Hmm. The Conservatives' reply, because they work, can easily garner a leftist's reply, what do you mean, work? The values of cannibals work very well for them, don't they? Suppose, then, that the Conservative were to say, look, no sane man doubts that the West's traditional values work inasmuch as they produce material prosperity, freedom, peace among the nations. But what of those who despise luxury, who hunger for power, and who crumble at peace imposed on them by the will of other nations? What of those people, the relativist might respond? Do we have an answer? Why shouldn't their values count? To call men like Robespierre or Lenin or Hitler or Mao insane, absent a major refinement, cultural conservatives' argument becomes simply to say— that we don't like those men's values. It's not to say they're wrong. It's just that we don't like them. And if a skeptic were to add, suppose that tomorrow the stock market plunges into a deep uh, depression or that war with Russia or China or North Korea should break out, what then would become of those conservative values? Would we still be able to say Western civilization works? Where do we go to find these virtues or justifications for them? Of course, our founding. Are we aware, for example, of John Adams' letters to his son Charles, written while serving as George Washington's vice president? In one letter to his son, John Adams explained the definition of moral equality, saying this, It really means little more than that we're all of the same species, made by the same God possessed of minds and bodies alike, in essence having all the same reason, passions, affections, and appetites. All men are men and not beasts, men and not birds, men and not fish. The infant in the womb is a man, not a lion. All these are men and not angels, men and not vegetables. The equality of nature is a moral equality, only an equality of rights and obligations what it speaks of, and nothing more, John Adams said. It is of the utmost importance, then, to help raise our own and our young people's sights from the dehumanized, deracinated, anti-humanizing world of relativism and the quest for educational reform in it. We would do well to turn to not only embracing the great books, but also to the great exemplars of wisdom with which our country is blessed. To help reclaim our destiny as human beings and as citizens, we need to rediscover the generation that really could claim to be the best and the brightest in American history, at least from the statesman's point of view, the founders of the American Republic. Which is why I hope you can begin to understand the left, the Democratic Party, and indeed the President of the United States that we have right now are trying to cancel Independence Day. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602 5080960 We spoke a little bit, and there's a lot to do today, and we'll do it. And we have some great experts joining us, uh, including uh, Debbie Lesko and uh, Mark Krikorian from the Center for Immigration Studies, uh, something on Joe Biden and Russia – did you see what Joe Biden said about Putin and Putin's response? Joe Biden called Vladimir Putin a killer. Can you imagine if Donald Trump called head of a foreign state that, what the media would say? The media has said very little about this. Putin has responded in kind, basically saying it takes one to know one. Our friend Mike McCormick wrote a biography of Joe Biden. will join us on that. He traveled with Biden in previous iterations to Russia. So uh, Mike, uh, Mike will have good wisdom on this. But the Atlanta story, it still rankles, I have to tell you, uh, because we're told eight died, six of whom were Asian or Asian-American. And we spent some time on this yesterday, this narrative that there's this growing anti-Asian hate crime scenario taking place in America because Donald Trump referred to the virus as the Wuhan virus. Of no president was it ever said he exacerbated racial tensions for talking about other health problems with geographies, the Ebola virus. What about the Brazilian strain we're now talking of? By the way, Rand Paul, too, upping his stock again with me in his interrogations of Anthony Fauci today in the U.S. Senate. If you haven't seen that, you're going to love it. They're both scientists. They're both MDs. Who do you think is smarter, Rand Paul, who, um, as you'll hear in a few moments, had study after study, or Anthony Fauci, who had speculation? Which scientist do you want to follow? They're both scientists. One is actually two scientists. Rand Paul, I think it's fair to say, is not only a medical scientist, but a political scientist. Anthony Fauci, with his two masks and a vaccine, I think is a cipher. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. Um, Yeah, so I was talking about, you know, it's a pretty monumental thing. A pretty monumental thing that eight people were killed in a shooting in a major city in America in one day. And it's odd to me. It's odd to me that the only thing you know about it is that most of them, six of the eight were Asians. That's all you know about it. Do you know their names? What do you know about the killer? Do you know that the killer said that this wasn't a racial incident, though the media is trying to play it up as one? Is an anti. What do you know about, uh, what do you, what do you know of the other two? This is the game that has been foisted on us that makes us think in these terms. As I was quoting yesterday, who was it I was quoting? I don't remember. But as I was quoting yesterday. If you're a family survivor of one of the people that were killed in this Atlanta shooting, what would you more like? Their name and something about them or just their race, just the fact that they were Asian workers at a massage parlor? doesn't tell you a darned thing about them. And the left and the media is trying to perpetrate this notion that there is rising anti-Asian violence, hate crimes in America Due to, of course, Donald Trump's talking of a virus that came from China. How long ago was the last time anyone heard Donald Trump talk of a China virus anyway? First of all, six months, let's say, to be generous. I think it's longer, but let's be generous and say six months. Hell of an incubation period to foment a crime of cold-blooded murder or passion the New York Times is today a little bit, just a little bit, on the case I was making yesterday, because it was my friend Jim who said, "Where is this anti hate crime, anti uh, anti Asian hate crimes? Where, 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 where are the facts on this? What are the stats on this?" And so I looked because I said, "You know, I I'm pretty used to understanding FBI hate crime statistics. I I tend to write about them or say something about them every year when they come out." And it would be odd that they'd come out in March for 2020. They're usually lag quite a bit. It's almost like eight to nine months lag between – and son of a gun, he's right and I'm right. There's no federal government information on a rise in hate crimes amongst Asians. It's all based on an organization that was founded last year, a think tank lobby organization called Stop AAPI Hate. It's a report they did. As one listener yesterday put it, interesting that they were founded only last year. China, Wuhan, Trump. Interesting that. And they report 3,800 incidents targeting Asian Americans since a year ago, 3,800 hate incidents. Well, I I went to the report. I don't know how many in the media have. I think they should get the head of it on, of of this organization on. It's hard to find out who it is because the federal government last year found that there were 158 anti-Asian incidents. Hell of a difference between 158 and 3,800. Until you read this organizations report, and you find out that some 20%, it's not destruction of churches or businesses or homes, it's shunning. They call it shunning. That would be over 700 incidents of the 3,800 would be shunning. the heck knows what that was someone didn't meet your eyes at the grocery store return a hello or who knows if you're behind a mask we're all shunning each other these days how the heck do you just substantiate shunning as a hate crime 70 percent was verbal so lest you think there's violence unless you think words are violence which i know the progressives are trying to instantiate and uh concretize and uh, reify in our society. Unless you think words are violent, 70% of these 3,800 are verbal. There's no excuse for racial verbal assaults or insults. There's no excuse for it. But maybe, 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 maybe. Maybe. We should understand This alleged murderer, as he understands himself, and think about a society that venerates Cardi B as we talk about the issue of a man who has serious psychological problems with sex addiction. Do we want to talk about that or do we not? By the way, just one more thing on the left using Asian-Americans as a wedge to attack conservatives or Trump supporters. Who's been on the side of almost every single lawsuit I can imagine Asian-American students and would-be students have waged against the government and the Ivy Leagues and private colleges because of the discrimination or the reverse discrimination against them because of affirmative action. Who sided with the Asian Americans at Yale who were suing Yale? The Trump administration did. Who, when becoming inaugurated president and taking over the Department of Justice, withdrew the federal government's support of the Asian Americans lawsuit? Joe Biden and this Department of Justice. Who sided with the Asian-Americans who were suing Harvard? Conservative legal groups did. Who supports affirmative action, race-based preferences that harm Asian-Americans in the thing they care about most, educational advancement? Who sides with them and who sides against them? Shakespeare and the Merchant of Venice does a good service by trying to explain a little bit of what I was talking about in my monologue, a little bit about understanding human beings as human beings and not members of something by dint of crude birth to a certain race. If I can paraphrase, hath not an Asian have eyes, hath not an Asian have hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer. As a white person is, if you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? Now, of course, Shylock was speaking as a Jew, comparing himself or speaking to Christians, and the line really is by the same winter and summer as a Christian is, not as a white person is. But that's the point, isn't it? Are we all Americans here or not? And once the statistic 3,800 from a group no one until last year ever heard of? Almost 800 of which includes something called shunning, which seems to me an Impressive thing to figure out behind a face mask, 70% of which is verbal. Asians have taken it a lot from this society in the racial wars, which I despise and hate. I lived in Los Angeles uh, during the Rodney King riots in 1992. First time I ever bought a weapon, a gun. Chris Buskirk took me. We were living next to each other and learned how to use one because we didn't know what was coming. No one knew. You know who knew? The Asian American community. It was obvious what happened in those riots. Asian American businesses, particularly Korean, were targeted more so than the police, more so than the city attorney's offices, Asian Americans. Because they were a model of success and resentment because of that success. Who stood up up and stood up for them? Conservatives and Republicans did. So it's just a little bit hard to take this gaslighting as a conservative that our guy is responsible for fomenting a rise in Asian-American hatred. It's absurd to me. It's absurd to me to even think that people would take revenge on Asians in this country because of something China did. If there's anyone we should take revenge on, it's the officials at the NBA, and I'll tell you why in a few moments, for covering up what China's really doing. Do we have time for Rand Paul? God love this guy. His stock is rising. You know, folks remind me, when I talk about Christy Noem and Ron DeSantis and Tom Cotton and Dan Crenshaw and Andy Biggs and David Schweikert and Debbie Lesko and uh, Jim Jordan and other great members of our Senate and House, help me not forget Josh Hawley. Help me not forget Rand Paul. This man is standing up. Here he was talking with Anthony Fauci in the U.S. Senate today. What study
0: shows significant reinfection, hospitalization, and death after either natural infection or the vaccine? It doesn't exist. There is no evidence that there are significant reinfections after a vaccine. In fact, I don't think we have a hospitalization in the United States after the two-week period after the second vaccination. Yeah, you have a death in the United States you're not hearing what i'm saying about variants we're talking about wild type versus variants and now is there what proof is there that there are significant reinfections with hospitalizations and death from the variants none in our country zero well because we don't have a prevalent of a variant yet we're having one can i finish we're you know, having one one conjecture. seven. That's becoming you're more dominant. Policy based on conjecture. No, you it, have the. It isn't based we're on going conjecture. To get variants, so you some you want people to wear a mask for another couple of years. No. You've been vaccinated and you parade around in two masks for show. No. You can't get it again. There's almost there's virtually zero percent chance you're going to get it, and yet you're telling people with them um, that have had the vaccine who have immunity. You're defying everything we know about immunity by telling people to wear masks who've been vaccinated. Instead, you should be saying there is no science to say we're going to have a problem from the large number of people being vaccinated. You want to get rid of vaccine hesitancy? Tell them they can quit wearing their mask after they get the vaccine. You want people to get the vaccine? Give them a reward instead of telling them that the nanny state's going to be there for three more years and you got to wear a mask forever. People don't want to hear it. There's no science behind it. Well, let me just state Dr. for the record that masks are not theater. Masks <laughs> are protective. And if we, we have ask, immunity They are theater. If you already have immunity, you're wearing a mask to give comfort to others. You're not wearing a mask because of any science. I, I totally
1: disagree with you. Well, that is great science. I totally disagree with you. Rand Paul had him dead to rights. Fauci said, well, it could happen. Now why didn't Fauci take the bait cuz he knows cuz he knows that the original point of the mask it wasn't to protect the other it wasn't to protect you as to protect the other guy. Why didn't Fauci make that, make that point? Senator Paul, no. Masks uh masks don't protect me, it protects me from hurting you. Because he knows he's full of baloney and he knows Rand Paul read the scientific studies and he knows it's absurd to wear a mask after vaccination as much as it's absurd to wear two masks, as Fauci and Joe Biden are doing. You know what? Let me go a bit farther. As absurd as it is to wear a mask, period. Congresswoman Debbie Lesko will be joining us in just a few minutes at the top of the next hour after the news break on the crisis at the border. Did Donald Trump ban any media to anything from anything? Or was his fault that he spoke a little too much to them? Speaking too much to them, they deigned to say he was waging a war against the media. The Biden administration has banned media from ride-alongs to cover this border crisis but that's not the that's not the entire warp and woof of the problem show me a picture has anyone seen a picture a picture of these child detention centers or any of these detention centers no cuz that isn't allowed either but it's not a war against the media is it It's a war against public information and truth. That's a little harder for CNN and MSNBC to wrap their heads around. JD Vance, author of The Hillbilly Elegy, has a great piece in Newsweek. He writes I've thought of this moment frequently that we're living in right now as a southern border has exploded into crisis, where a year into the COVID 19 pandemic, with tens of millions of people unemployed, countless businesses being destroyed. And despite the enormous challenges facing America's working class, those same masters of the universe and politicians they fund are still looking at the same thing. Cheap foreign labor. No one seems to care that many migrants test positive for COVID every day and will directly compete with our struggling service sector workers. Republicans are right to oppose this madness. But here's a deeper question. Why is this happening? Why are we inviting thousands of people to come in the midst of a global pandemic while economic devastation wrecks our working and middle classes? Why are we promising amnesty for millions when we know the vicious transnational drug cartels use that promise to sell desperate people on the promise of crossing the border? The answer is it's about money. Nearly every major business and financial leader in this country is a supporter of the Democratic. Democratic Party. They love illegal immigration for the simple reason that their livelihoods are subsidized by it, while illegal aliens themselves are subsidized by the taxpayer. It's a redistribution scheme from the poor to the rich. More immigration means lower wages and easier access to servants for the decadent personal lives of the ruling class." We should take a page from President Trump's playbook and call this what it is. Whenever I criticize the Biden administration's immigration policies, I'm told I'm a racist. Many Republicans naturally grow defensive. No one wants to be called that in today's environment. But the proper response to these criticisms is to ignore them. It's not racist to want a secure border high and paying jobs for our fellow citizens and a government that doesn't allow human smugglers to earn billions on the plight of poor people. It's not racist to want to keep meth and heroin out of our aching community's bloodstream. Damn straight.